0: RTI (laughs) International's Justice Practice Practice Area presents
1: Justice Science.
0: Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode one of our Resilient Leadership mini-season, Just Science sat down with Jamila Dick, Director of Health and Safety, and Meredith Rosenberg the Department of Forensic Biology Deputy Director with the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner, also referred to as OCME, to discuss their successful strategies for creating a resilient workplace in the field of forensic science. In general, the forensic science workplace can be emotionally and physically taxing, as practitioners are expected to maintain a high quality of work while often being exposed to stressful or sensitive situations. In response to this challenge, many forensic science organizations are implementing mental health and resiliency programs that can help combat burnout and create a more adaptable workplace for their employees. Listen along as Jamila and Meredith describe what it means to be a resilient workplace, the specific strategies utilized by the OCME, and suggestions for organizations looking to find resources on workplace mental health. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justices, Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Ben Swanholm.
1: Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Ben Swanholm, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We are recording at the 2023 American Society of Crime Laboratory Director Symposium in Austin, Texas, themed Resilient Leadership. This mini-season will tease out what resiliency looks like in the forensic science community with a range of subject matter experts. Today, we'll be discussing a practical guide for employee wellness. Here to guide us in our discussion is Jamila Dick and Meredith Rosenberg from the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner. Welcome, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can each of you talk a little bit about your professional background and your journey to the New York City office of Chief Medical Examiner?
2: Sure, so I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in biology. And when I was performing my master's degree research, there was a member of our laboratory who was getting his PhD and he was finishing it up and he would torture me each week by asking me, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I said, I I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> but I do think that I'm interested in this uh, new DNA stuff that's being used in forensics. He actually worked for the agency in the DNA lab, uh, unbeknownst to me, and so he actually wrote a... Uh, phone number and a name. That's pretty much what led me to the OCME and that was back in 1998. And so I was actually hired as a consultant for quality control, was promoted over the years. I've been there for almost 25 years and now uh, I'm the one of the deputy directors of the laboratory.
3: So unlike Meredith and most people who are here at the symposium... I don't have a background in forensic science. My undergraduate degree is in environmental science with a minor in chemistry, and I completed my master's degree in marine and atmospheric science. So after grad school, I worked at the New York City Department of Health as an assistant scientist performing environmental investigations, and then I moved on to the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner, where I've been for the last 16 years, and I've been a director of health and safety for the past nine years. My interests mainly lie in workplace safety and well-being. So in 2018, I was given the opportunity to help start a wellness committee. And this was perfect because it led me really blend health and safety and wellness um, in order to ensure that employees at the agency have a healthier mental and physical well-being. I currently chair our agency's wellness committee, which is made up of a group of employees who are also interested in improving our employees' experience while at work and while outside.
1: So you all just presented a little bit ago in front of the whole group. So I'm just going to kind of ask some questions uh, about what you all talked about so we can have more people learn from your experiences and what you guys have all worked hard to build. So the first question I have is, can you describe what a resilient workplace is?
3: Sure. First, we should try to define what resilience is. And resilience is basically the ability to adapt, adjust, and recover after experiencing uh, some form of adversity, trauma, tragedy, loss, or significant stress. At the OCME and in the city, we believe that five main points when practiced will lead to a resilient workplace. They are, one, having leaders who are actively engaged in daily practice of mental resilience. Two, where we have staff have access to resources so that they can address mental health and they're not afraid to use them. Three, our staff and managers have supportive, empathetic relationships. Four, One, where conversations about mental well-being are encouraged and supported. And five, one where there are structural inputs in place to support workplace safety, practice, and policy. We have been working hard to ensure that we implement these across the agency, and I feel like we have been doing a pretty good job about that so far.
1: So in your opinion, then, what are some of the most important skills or qualities that are necessary to be a resilient forensic scientist? And how do you cultivate those skills and qualities in yourselves?
2: So I think in order to maintain resiliency in the field of forensic science, you have to ensure that you're not losing yourself in the work that you're doing every day. And by that, I mean, you have to make sure that you've put in place certain boundaries so that you don't... Become traumatized by the work that you're doing. That can fall to if you're going to crime scenes, you're seeing very jarring scenes in front of you. Whether you're performing autopsies, you know, it could be children. It could be, you know, very jarring. Uh, If you're examining evidence in cases that are particularly heinous, uh, forensic scientists are often reading police narratives that can be very uh, emotionally trying. And you want to make sure that you are giving yourself to the work that you're doing, but not losing yourself in the work that you're doing. And the way that we're ensuring that we ourselves are remaining resilient is we have to take time for ourselves. That's very important. I know uh, Jamila definitely promotes that in our agency. You want to make sure that you're taking time for yourself, that there are certain ways that you're doing that. For example, that you're eating well, that you're sleeping enough, that you're speaking to people who are in your support Group, whether that is your family, your friends, your coworkers, your religious leaders, whoever, whoever works for you, to talk about what you're seeing and what you're doing at work each day. Uh, it's important so that you maintain your own resiliency. Otherwise, you can't really help those around you.
1: So it seemed that you could put those like in a simple boxes like stress or stressors. Would that be? Accurate? Yes. Yes. So what are like some of the common stressors or most frequent stressors that you all have seen affecting your team members?
2: Besides what they would call secondary traumatic stress of what you're physically seeing at work every day, there's also burnout. Burnout's a, a big problem right now, especially in the forensic field, where the legal system is relying so heavily on the forensic community to aid in investigations, law enforcement, and the courts. They want results faster. They want them better. They want them in greater volume. And so it's difficult to maintain the amount of work that is needed to be produced with the staffing that you have. People need breaks, you need time off. And it's difficult because you're invested in the work that you're doing. So you don't always want to take that work uh, time off necessarily, or the time that it takes to make sure that you're dealing with your burnout. There's always going to be more cases coming in the door, there's going to be more crime scenes that need to be investigated, more evidence to be examined, more autopsies to be performed.
1: It's kind of interesting. I was uh, I teach in the Leadership Academy, and I was actually telling a story of a relation for people to connect what I was trying to teach, right? And then I finished like, well, that's my stress story for the day. That's how I equate a lot of what's happening is that it, it's stress. Yes. So, so what are some tools or strategies that you've found people can use to address the mental and physical tolls of that workplace stress?
3: So there are varieties of personal strategies which work and don't cost much. So... If people get more active, uh, eat a healthy diet, avoid unhealthy habits like smoking, eating too much or drinking alcohol, practicing meditation so you focus more, practicing mindful breathing getting more sleep. And sleep should be good quantity and quality as well. Journaling, so you can write down some of the issues you're experiencing. And by writing them down, you get to focus on them and probably help to alleviate a lot of the stress doing that. Also, connecting with others, as Meredith says. You connect with others in the field, um, you're all experiencing something similar. So you can actually commiserate and actually help reduce your stress as well. Being more assertive by actually saying, you know, I can't take on this amount of work right now. I need to um, just Work on something else until that's finished and do that. That helps reduce stress. And lastly, seek counseling when necessary. A counselor is there to listen and they can actually guide you through whatever issues you're experiencing. Um, That's personal. But on an organization level, I think leaders can help reduce stress by encouraging open communication between the employees and themselves. Also, providing access to mental health and physical health benefits. So, like in city environments, you know, you have good health insurance, discounts to gyms, access to therapists, meditation classes. We don't find that employees participate a lot in on site meditation, but if you create a unique environment for them to meditate, they will. So, we have like meditation buses coming on site. Also, we provide access to virtual resources like recorded meditations or platforms like Calm and Headspace so they can access them on your own time. And also encouraging employees to take breaks throughout the day. You get stressed, you know, you do something else. It definitely reduces your stress level. And also, if possible, offering flexible work schedules. If employees feel comfortable where they are working, they tend to be more productive and less stressed. And also be an example. Once you lead by examples, employees will follow.
2: I just also wanted to add that no matter what programs you put in place in the workplace, you won't get 100% participation. That's just because it doesn't always fit into people's time schedules. But sometimes just knowing that those programs are in place for you can be comforting and even if they're not taking part in all of the different programs, uh, it, maybe if it's just some of them, at least there's uh, something available to help people. So I myself don't get to take part in all of them, but like I participated in a sleep wellness seminar and I found it, you know, beneficial. Uh, not necessarily so much information that I didn't already know, but the fact that you, you sit in a room and you see that there are other people who are dealing with the same issue. And so you get to learn from others what's working for them and what's not.
1: So have you found or do you track the percentage of team members that may use different services or not? And which ones have you found to implement? Some organizations may not have all the resources to implement all of those, you those know, ideas that you have. So maybe like what's your top ones or what you've seen to be the most effective for your team members?
3: Ones that allow the employees to be more active and engaged. So like they're doing something that's more creative, they're making something or um, One where it's new, it's different from the usual. So a good example is that we had a plant workshop. So not only are you able to pot your own plant, you're able to take it with you as well. So just trying to find unique things really work. Also, how we track it, after we do programs, we we tend to send out a survey so we know what worked and what doesn't um, based on what the employee responses are.
1: And so you're just finding those events or opportunities through your own research of what's available in your community or do you have people trying to approach the city of New York with these programs or or a little of both?
3: So for us, we're very blessed in New York City because we have access to the workplace wellness program called Work Well NYC and they provide a lot of pre-packaged programs for us. So they create them and help us actually implement them on site as well. Sometimes we also take ideas from the employees. Uh, they may say, like, you know, I want a self-defense class. And then we will just try to work with WorkWell NYC or our executive leadership to try to find res- the vendors or other resources to actually implement them as well. So we do try to be creative by developing new things, but most of what we have are actually pre-packaged for us from WorkWell NYC.
1: So just on a, I guess, personal note, we just had our own concern come through our staff team of like that personal defense class. Did you find a lot of people were interested or a little bit?
3: Meredith was actually the one that reached out and asked if we can have a self-defense class on site. So I started looking at vendors that we could use. Then I reached out to WorkWell NYC and they actually were starting something similar. Okay. So once they developed that, uh, we decided to, of course, use their resources. And we had amazing response from the employees we sent out a survey so I wanted to make sure that we could have provided to all employees and we had over 200 people respond to the survey which is absolutely amazing and from that we have in general we started the program about two weeks ago and we have like 50 to 80 people participating at any one time so that just shows the interest is there and also once you listen to the employees and respond to what they really want you can really improve participation as well
2: I would say, though, you don't necessarily have to go through formal programs. Not every uh, agency will have access to them. So just from a a lab perspective, things that we've done to help with uh, mental health and resiliency, we have one day a month where... We kind of pause from actual day-to-day work, and that gives people time to catch up on any continuing education requirements that they have, uh, to to straighten up their desks because sometimes you know it just gets a little crazy while you're just trying to get things done throughout the I'm week. I'm definitely and the month. guilty of that one. <laughs> it also gives them time to uh, just kind of recalibrate where they are and what they're doing, and then get ready for the rest of the month. Food is always a welcome change of pace. So I find that uh, if we just buy pizza for everyone, that really has an impact on people understanding that they are appreciated, they are valued, and that management does want to do something for them.
1: So what do you think would be the best piece of advice for members of our friends a community that are looking to start or improve the resiliency and adaptability in their organizations?
2: I would say look to any local programs in your area that you could draw upon. Uh, definitely things that could be free for example not everybody has the ability to bring in mental health care providers to for their staff to talk to but you may have local hospitals near you where you can draw upon their staff they might donate their time to come in and talk to your staff so I think it's important to yes Make resources available to your staff, but also bring the resources to your staff. That does help. They may think, I don't have time to go after work to seek out mental health with a professional. But if you bring one on site, that may make them more likely to accept the help.
1: Uh, So one of the questions uh, I thought of when thinking about this topic is uh, generations Have you guys seen uh, differences in generations and their use of the programs that you guys provide and or the success of different programs?
2: So I definitely differences in younger professionals coming into the field and how they're looking at the work that they're doing uh, versus um, older staff. Older staff are more practice hands at this point. And so they've actually they've already developed tools and ways to deal with things, trauma that they're experiencing from just day to day work work life. Younger staff are still trying to figure out their boundaries for dealing with the work. In my experience, I have noticed that younger staff are taking part more in a lot of the programs that's being offered from the wellness program at the OCMA. When we have laboratory events occurring, it's always the newer staff, the younger staff who want to help plan, help, carry out uh, because they're excited about it and they're excited to do something that's sort of team building. It fosters great energy for the lab and so they, they're definitely more interested in it.
3: And I also think that the OLA staff just know that it's work. They don't try to think about, oh, I need, I need to have some support to actually get the job done. Um, so they, they're very hesitant to participate sometimes because they may think it's just something that we're doing for fun as opposed to something that's really improving their resilience. Also, older staff tend to be a little bit more limited technology-wise, so we have to really diversify how we're delivering the programs. Sometimes we have to do virtual things to make sure we can include as many people as possible. But then when we do that, you know that many older staff might not be participating. So what we do to actually help that is maybe have a supervisor encourage them to participate by pulling up the program on the computer in their office and having the staff come in and participate. Also asking them what they want. Um, If you ask them, like, you know, would you prefer to have this virtual program or do you want to have this on-site meditation? Yes. But then you'll need to participate. So just doing things to really encourage them as well is very helpful.
1: So continuing our conversation on generations and the younger team members finding their way, do you have any assistance within the individuals that have been there, done that uh, or programs that you've put in place uh, to mentor or, or anything like that?
2: So for the Department of Forensic Biology, because we are so large and it is a long training program and it's a pretty intense training program uh, as required by DNA guidelines, we have a very robust mentoring program that we have been modifying over the years to make it more robust when new staff enter the agency. For the DNA Laboratory, we pair them up with a mentor. A mentor can be an analyst who's been there for many years. It could be an analyst who's been there for one year, but knows the ropes, knows what's going on, can help guide the person through personnel issues, uh, human resource issues, Additionally, the mentors help our younger staff gain a wider perspective of how the laboratory works and uh, case working in general beyond what even they would be picking up in just the formal training program that we have. The formal training program is just going to focus on what's the, the technical knowledge that you need to get through your day-to-day work to ensure that we can allow you to work in casework. However, your mentor is going to give you a bigger picture as you're going through your training so that you can get a better perspective of what it is that you're doing and what's the end goal. Uh, So that hopefully what we have are people who are invested in the work, are knowledgeable in the work and are comfortable with the work.
1: Do you have any last minute thoughts for our listeners before we close out this episode?
2: I think it's just important to understand that there are stresses in any workplace and certainly in the field of forensics. Those stresses are only now really starting to be sussed out with data. I know that there's a lot of data out there for the traumatic impact on first responders, not so much with forensic scientists. And so that's only now being sussed out. Just workplaces need to keep that in mind. Management needs to keep that in mind and to make resources available for staff, ensure that the staff knows that management is aware that these things are out there and that they should be aware so that you can recognize if somebody needs help. You can't obviously diagnose anybody, but you can certainly notice if somebody's patterns have changed, if they were extroverted before, now they're becoming introverted. Patterns like that can sort of trigger that they might need a little help and to be able to offer them some sort of help with whatever local resources you have.
3: I also want to say that you know we need to learn or practice measuring the effectiveness of the program as well. So for us, it's very difficult as a small agency to do um, perform traditional return on investment analyses. So what we do is use surveys. So performing surveys after a program has been delivered is a great way to collect data. It should always include questions that gauge satisfaction of the program and also capture recommendations, which you will use to actually refine the programs that you're delivering. It's also important to know that no matter how important the programs are, It's very difficult to get all employees to participate unless it's mandated. So to understand how effective the efforts are, tracking program participation, as well as metrics like how many people participated, how many people registered, and then how many people actually participated are also important. For us, we will be working with the New York Academy of Medicine under a program that was coordinated by WorkWell NYC to actually measure the effectiveness of our resiliency programs. project. It was called Stigma-Free Workplace Initiative. So we are working with them to actually measure that as well. So try to find resources if you don't have them yourself.
1: Jamila and Meredith, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for your time and willingness to discuss your programs.
3: Thank you for Thank having you us. Thank you so much.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Ben Swanum, and this has been another episode of Just Science.
0: Next week, Just Science sits down with Henry Maynard to discuss the ASCLAD Forensic Research Committee. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.